We started last week talking about the songs of Christmas, and there are so many of them, right? Uh, Tens of thousands, likely. In fact, the, the birth of Jesus has inspired more great music by more great artists across more centuries than any other event in human history. And the Bible's no different. The Bible records a whole bunch of these songs. In fact, there's, there's four of them that are clustered together right there in the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. Last week, we looked at Mary's song, the song sung over Jesus by his mother, Mary, sometimes called the Magnificat. Next week, we're going to look at... Uh, just a marvelous brief song sung by an older gentleman named Simeon. Simeon's song, sometimes called the Nunc Dimittis, a beautiful, beautiful invitation to rest in the provision of God. On Christmas morning, we'll look at the angel's song. You remember that one? Gloria and Excelsior. In fact, you should start your cardio now so that when we sing it together, you can do it in one long, sustained breath. Gloria. <gasps> that one, yes. But for today, we're going to look at Zachariah's song. There's something about, about this song that just, I don't know, it, it grabs something deep within me. It, it moves me to praise in ways that, well, some songs have the power to do that, right? There are songs that mark us, that, that, that grab us and change us or draw us back to significant, significant moments in our life. I remember the song that, that was playing the first time I kissed a girl whose name wasn't mom or auntie or grandma. <laughs> Crazy for You by Madonna. I just... Not a great song. I remember the song that was playing when I placed a log on a fire to symbolize the committing of my life to Christ. (laughs) Pass it on. What could I say? It was the 70s. I remember the song that was playing when I marched up to the registrar's office to withdraw from the engineering program at Waterloo because I had sensed the calling of God into my life to pursue ministry. It was... Upon this rock. Maybe, maybe you have songs like that in your life. And maybe you can think of those milestone moments. I remember the song that Karina and I danced to at our wedding, Brown Eyed Girl by Van Morrison. Karina has blue eyes, so it was an interesting, interesting <laughs> suggestion, but there it was. In Zachariah's song, you're going to hear the the overtones of a whole life of prayer that kind of explode out in this one burst of praise. You're going to see the plan of God. You're going to see the pace at which the plan unfolds. You're going to see how its outworking happened. And it all gets wrapped up in this set of lyrics in Luke's gospel. When you understand the story behind the song, sometimes the song takes on just a deeper and richer meaning. So this morning, we're going to spend a little bit of time, I hope it's okay, unpacking the story behind Zachariah's song. And as we go through the passage, I want you to think with me about the way God's plans work in our lives and in the world, about the way plans unfold, about the pace of those plans. The history of the song is, in fact, the absence of history. Israel had experienced what they, what they experienced as 400 years of silence for four centuries 
the nation of Israel, who had always had prophets and priests and kings keeping them connected to God, had felt like God had stopped speaking to them. They felt nothing but silence. Now, we could argue about whether that was true, like whether God, in fact, had withdrawn himself or they had just, in fact, lost the ability to connect to God. But over the course of four centuries, people were wondering. They're starting to ask questions. Has God forgotten us? What about all the talk about a Messiah? What about the redemption of his people? And then suddenly, in the most unexpected of ways, a plan begins to unfold. And this one is... Well, this is curious, to the point of being bizarre. It involves an old priest, a 15-year-old girl, two babies, and an obscure village. And from a strategy point of view, it made no sense. From a marketing point of view, this was a disaster. This is not the big splash we anticipate that God is going to make in the world. In fact, most people overlooked what was happening because it just wasn't grand enough. In the Old Testament, in a book, which also, curiously, is named Zechariah, there's this telling little verse. This is God speaking in chapter 4, verse 10, where God says, Do not despise the day of small things. It's often how God works in the small things. A plan emerges His will is being renewed. In this passage, you get to see the fascinating intersection between what we might call the personal, what God is doing in each of our lives individually, and the corporate, what God is doing in the larger community of his people and in the world. You're going to see God at work in a few individual lives so that he could be at work in renewing a whole nation, the nation of Israel. And then you get to see God working the nation of Israel so that he could be at work in the whole world. It was a cosmic plan, vast in its scope. And it was expressed initially just in a few unexpected individual lives. So God's plan is particular and individual, but it's also enormous and global. Let's start by by looking at the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, I hope you have a Bible with you. If, If not, a device. If not, just tucking close to somebody next to you that has one. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, let's meet Zechariah. Luke 1, 5 says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, which means she's part of a line of priests. Both of them, interesting description, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. At that time, Zechariah is one of about 18,000 priests serving in Israel. That's a lot of priests. I mean, that was far more priests than they could possibly accommodate within the walls of, of Jerusalem. Because there were so many of them, the vast majority of them would live out of the country. And only twice a year, for a week at a time, they would come in and they would perform their priestly responsibilities. So Zechariah lives outside of Jerusalem, married to a woman who's also a member of a, of a priestly clan or a priestly tribe. And Luke wants us to be sure that we know this about them. It says, they were righteous in the sight of God. Not that they were without sin, but they were They were doing their best in observing all the Lord's commands and decrees. 
That's interesting. That same expression, righteous in the eyes of God, is also used in Luke chapter 2 to describe Simeon. And we'll look at his song next week. It's used in Matthew chapter 1 to describe Joseph, the father of Jesus. It's kind of like God's plan is unfolding initially in the lives of these kind of obscure people, simple people. But they're good people and hearts that yearned for righteousness. Those hearts, I think, will always be God's truest home. Luke carries the story a little bit further, gives us some more background. Zechariah and Elizabeth were an old couple, and they were childless. Now, in those days, that's not just an unfortunate circumstance. It was reason for questioning the presence of God in their lives. So on the one hand, you have this little bit about them living righteous and blameless before God. But then in the next breath, Luke mentions that they had not received the surest sign in that culture of the blessing of God. They had no children. And that was, that was considered to be a point of some shame. Like, why has God not blessed you this way? He promised this would be part of his blessing, that you would have descendants. Everybody in the village probably knew about this. How could you be a priest, a man of God, and not be blessed with children? So here they are living a very public life with that little bit of shame attached to them. And just to drill the point home one more time, Luke emphasizes that they were both very, very old. Luke 1, verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division, this is what the priests, like the whole divisions of priests, when his division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. And he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning incense came, all of the assembled worshipers were together praying outside. So what's going on here? As one of the 18,000 or so priests, Zachar arrives to carry out his, his priestly duties in Jerusalem. And in preparation for the big service on Saturday, the high holy day on the Sabbath once a year, the Day of Atonement, they would draw lots. And one priest would be chosen to carry the incense, which is a reminder of God's presence, along with the prayers of God's people. Praying for what? Praying for, praying for deliverance, praying for redemption, praying for the coming of God's salvation and for his Messiah. That one priest would take off their shoes, would tie a rope around one leg, and with knees knocking would walk into the very center of the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and there on the Ark of the Covenant, on the altar before God, they would make sacrifices and pray, God, please don't forget your people. Come to the rescue of your people. Only one was chosen, and only once a year. This is the culmination of an entire career spent in in the priestly line. Uh, And Zechariah knew, as most priests did, the chances were he would go to his grave without ever having to do this. He knew for sure that it would never happen again, because once you'd served, your name is taken out of the lottery. You can't serve again. And so with pride and excitement, and probably more than a little bit of fear, with the whole nation of Israel gathered outside, Zechariah enters the Holy of Holies, rope tied around one leg. I'll tell you why again in a second. There's no preparing for what happens next. Have your Bibles? Have a look. Verse 11. 
he arrives in the middle of the Holy of Holies and discovers he's not alone. There was a messenger of God standing there right next to the altar. It says in verse 11, when Zacharias saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. I bet he was. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. That sound familiar? Every time the angels appear, you get that, which would lead you to believe that there is something overwhelming about being in the presence of a messenger of God. Do not be afraid. Similar words Gabriel speaks to Mary. Mary, don't be afraid. The angel goes on, verse 13, says to Zechariah, your prayer has been heard, period. The period is important. Full stop. Your prayer has been heard. What prayer? We're going to come back to that. New thought, new sentence. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. When you first read that, the automatic assumption is that the two are connected, that the angel is saying, Zechariah, now that you finally arrived in the Holy of Holies, the most sacred spot on earth, of, you know, in the minds of your people, God has finally heard the prayers that you have offered to have a child. But that's not it. That's not what's going on here. That's not why he's in the Holy of Holies. That's not what he was praying for. They'd probably long since given up praying for children. Elizabeth is in her 80s now. In fact, there's a particular verb that's used. And if any of you are grammar geeks, is there such a thing, grammar geeks? That you might remember there's a particular tense that we can use of a verb that refers to an action that happened in the recent past, immediate recent past. It's called the aorist. And while we don't use it the same way in English, this is absolutely the verb that's used here, as if to say the prayer that you just offered the prayer for deliverance, for salvation, the coming of the Messiah, that prayer has been answered. And then, new thought, oh, and by the way, you and your wife are going to have a child. A beautiful example of how, how the personal and the corporate get intertwined. And, and poor Zechariah, I mean, he had no way of imagining that somehow the prayer for deliverance, for, for the coming of the Messiah, would be wrapped up with this prayer that they had long ago given up on, that, that their family might enjoy the blessing of a child. It's kind of a, it's kind of a profound thing. It's, it's exciting to see that God can work at both levels, in individual lives and then in the big cosmic plan for salvation. Now, if that weren't enough, that there's, a, that there's an angel in the Holy of Holies, Zechariah is being told that, that the one prayer that he had offered there, a prayer that has been offered now for 400 years, and the perception is that it's not been answered, is now going to be finally honored. If that's not enough, Gabriel goes on, probably just letting that first little bit of information settle in, and then gives him a little bit more. Verses, verse 14 now in chapter 1. And he will be a joy and a delight to you. Here in the middle of this grandiose sweeping plan of salvation, John the Baptist is going to have a key place in it. And the angel doesn't mind tell him, telling Zechariah that, oh, by the way, this little boy is going to knock your socks off. I mean, you're, just, you're going to be so in love with your son. And it won't just be you. It says in verse 14b, the second half of the verse, many people will rejoice because of his birth. And he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Why? 
Because, verse 15, this child is being set apart for a special purpose, Zechariah. And I want you to know, just this curious little thought, I want you to know that from the very beginning of his life, I want you and your wife to keep him away from wine and fermented drink. Why? Because everyone should understand that what fills him is the power of the Holy Spirit, not some intoxicating substance. I want people to know that that power has been at work in him even before he was born. Parents, how many of you would love to hear those words about your kids? That your son, your daughter, that their life, their words will bring people back to God. In fact, there's an interesting description that comes next about what it means for a whole community of people to turn back to God. Gabriel says to Zechariah that one of the signs that people are turning back, that their hearts are changing, one of the signs is that the posture of parents toward their children changes. Verse 17, the words that your son preaches will turn the hearts of parents back towards their children. And those that are disobedient, back to the wisdom of the righteous. Because it's important that people be prepared. And that the world is ready for the Messiah who is coming. Takes a while for it all to settle in. I'm sure Zechariah's knees are still walking. By the way, the rope around his leg is that... People were pretty convinced that there's a chance that if you were in the Holy of Holies in this most sacred place in the presence of the living God, that your heart would stop on the spot. And they'd have to drag you out by the rope. There he is. And when he finally speaks, here's what he says, verse 18. "Um, How can I be sure of this? How can I be sure? And this is where the story takes a little bit of a sharp turn. Just a few verses later, when it's Mary's turn, and Mary receives a similar message from a messenger of God from Gabriel, she's terrified, she's getting the same news. She says something that sounds similar, but the tone is completely different. Zechariah says, hey, how can I be sure of this? Mary says, I don't understand how this could be. I'm still a virgin, but let it be according to your will. Maybe she's asking a little bit of insight into how this is going to work it out. But Zachariah's response is kind of different. How can I be sure? I'm an old man. My, my wife is well along in years, as if the angel didn't know that. And in asking for a sign, there's just kind of a little bit of pushback in his voice. So imagine you go into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred spot on earth. You see an angel. The angel tells you everything that we just read. And then you say, I'm going to need a sign. Gabriel's like, dude, I am the sign. I'm an angel. I mean, what do you want here? This is how Gabriel says it. Let me be clear who and what I am. I am Gabriel, he says. I stand in the presence of God, Zechariah, and I've been sent from that majestic presence to speak to you and tell you this good news. In the Holy of Holies, where hundreds of priests for hundreds of years have been praying for the redemption of Israel and the coming of the Messiah. In verse 19, it says, And so, Zechariah, you will be silent. You will not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, words which will come at the appointed time. And certainly there's, there's a component of this that feels like discipline, doesn't it? Like, like, like punishment, but, but what we're going to see is that actually for Zechariah, nine months 
of silent reflection and anticipation do a work in his heart. That's why silence is still one of those disciplines that we cultivate in seeking the presence of God. In the meantime, all this is going on. The people, the priests outside are starting to wonder, he's been in there a long time. Maybe we should pull the rope. Uh, When he finally does emerge, he can't speak. But he's making all of these signs and gestures, and they recognize something has happened in here. And you imagine the buzz that must have gone out from that place, where for 400 years of praying and praying and praying for redemption, there was nothing. And now, on what felt like an ordinary day, with an ordinary old man as priest, near the end of his career, there was silence again. But this silence, this was an animated, pregnant kind of silence. At long last, God was on the move. The plan of redemption was set in motion. In motion. And after that, Zechariah goes home. And we don't hear anything else for the nine months of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And then we pick up the story again in verse 57. Look towards the end of the chapter there, verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. They were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, because that's what you did. Babies, especially, especially firstborn sons, were always named after their father, or at least somebody in the lineage of their father. But Elizabeth spoke up and said, no, no, he's to be called Johann, John. Zechariah confirmed it, couldn't speak, so he wrote it on a tablet, the Bible said. His name is John, which means the Lord is gracious. Did you know that? Those of you who have the name John, the Lord is gracious. And the neighbors still couldn't believe it. There's nobody among your family that has that name. What are you doing? And already, just in the naming of the child, it's like God is stretching their spiritual imagination. Get get outside of the box of what you expect and be prepared for something unexpected in God's plan. Look what happens next. Verse 64. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free and he began to speak. Now, I don't know about you, But if I'd been in the presence of one of God's messengers in the Holy of Holies, been given the promise, been struck mute, watched my 80-year-old wife go through nine months of pregnancy and then deliver a son, the first thing out of my mouth would be, you will never, never believe what God has been. Yeah, can you imagine? I got to tell you about these last months. And on it goes. There's always a story behind a song. And in these nine months, in the silence... Zechariah has experienced, I think, a fresh new state of, state of spiritual vitality. And the first thing unleashed from his mouth is a just it's a torrent of praise. After nine months of silence, it just it burst out of him. In fact, you know, in the Gospel of Luke, there are more references to praising God than there are in the rest of the New Testament put together. This is a book of praise. And Zechariah's song is just... It's like this pent-up, unleashed joy. If you're looking for an idea about how to enter into this season, what the response is, here it is. So let's look at Zechariah's song. We'll just end by by reading it together. And I want you to feel the, the movement. Songs have structure to them. They have musical structure, and they have thematic structure. So this has a, a very simple four-part structure. He starts by... Just this feeling of being overwhelmed 
with thanksgiving and praise to God. That's where it starts. And then there's a section where he's celebrating God's amazing acts of salvation. It's the second section. The third section, kind of like the bridge in music, Carlos, kind of the bridge. He has this little moment where I think you could call it, that's my boy. <laughs> that's my boy. He's going to tell, uh, tell about the part that his son, John, comes to be known as John the Baptist, the part that John plays in his preparation for the Messiah. And then he's going to end by circling back to, to the first theme, celebrating God's salvation using these rich scriptural images of light being born into the darkness, of mercy being given into a world of need. Let's go through it quickly. And I just hope you get this sense of mounting joy as it was flooding out of Zechariah. It's like drinking from a fire hose of praise. So here it is. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Just as he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all those who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before all our days. You hear the movement? It starts with the burst of praise and the celebration of what God has done in the past. And here's the little bridge, that that's my boy part. And then you, he says, my child, my son, John, John the Baptist, who probably couldn't understand a word that his dad was singing at the moment, but, but sometimes the songs that surround us, uh, they infect the whole family, the whole village. The, so John was raised in an environment shaped by these, these words. He says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Forgiveness was about, about more than just paying some penalty. It's about the restoration of relationship. And you know who understood that better than anyone? John the Baptist, who found himself out there in the outskirts of a city calling people, saying, it's not too late. You can... Change your life. You can turn it around. You can start again in right relationship with God and with each other and the world in which God has lived. He called it repentance. It's a relationship word about just starting again. This salvation, this forgiveness of sins is, and, and this is moving into the closing movement, is because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven and shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and guide our feet in the paths of peace. Sometime this week, or in the weeks ahead, let me encourage you to do this. Take this small section of Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verses 68 through to the end of the chapter. And when you're alone... Read it, and read it aloud. Read it with the same enthusiasm that you might have if you were singing along with a favorite song. Read it aloud and practice it as an expression of joy in the good news that Jesus 
is born. In fact, let's do that now. Let me just invite you into a posture of worship, whatever that is. It could be eyes raised, it could be hands outstretched, it could be hands folded, it could be eyes closed, whatever it is, just a posture of worship. And imagine this song being sung over you. And you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. And you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation and through the forgiveness of their sins. Because the tender mercy of our God, by whom the rising sun will come to us from heaven and shine on those living in darkness and the shadows of death, by whom you will guide our feet into the path of peace. That, my friends, that is joy. Let's pray together in joy. Lord Jesus, we welcome you again during this season. We welcome you into hearts that sometimes have become too familiar with the story and maybe immune to that kind of joyful anticipation and ecstasy that, that first greeted the announcement of your coming. And God, we don't want to lose those moments. So with Zechariah, we, we want to lift up your name in praise. You are the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Each of those titles Each of them speak to the way that you interact with our lives and with our world. And we celebrate you in all of those ways. God, restore the joy of your people as we delight in the gift of salvation and the coming of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.